Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, sexual abuse of minors, forced adoption, and miscarriage. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Today's episode is going to seem dystopian, and it's not like the other stories I've covered. But it's a piece of history you need to know, one that has ramifications to this day. It extends back to the 1960s, but let's begin in 1983. A 13-year-old named Trisha Haas discovers she's pregnant. Her parents send her to a facility for, and I'm doing air quotes here, troubled young women. This particular facility is called the Bethesda Home for Girls. It's a place where young women can wait out their pregnancies, relax under the guidance of caretakers, connect with God. At least, that's what she's told. One afternoon at the home, Trisha's told she gets to run an errand. She leaves the home together with another pregnant young woman and a staff member they'll call Mama. A few minutes into their drive, Trisha realizes something is off. Her housemate is in labor. They pull into a grocery store parking lot where the girl delivers her baby. Then Mama wraps it in a blanket and makes a call on a payphone. 40 minutes later, a man drives up. He gives Mama $250 in cash and drives away with the new baby. And that young woman never sees her child again. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. This is our second episode in May, which is also Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month. For information on Missing and Unidentified Persons Month and to find out ways to help, please visit spotify.com disappearances. And with Mother's Day approaching, I wanted to focus some of the attention that particular holiday gets onto a story many people probably don't know about, but absolutely should. Like every other case I discuss, it has to do with not knowing where someone you care about has gone. I'll introduce you to several young women who were sent to maternity homes between the 1960s and the 1980s. Many of them were forced to sign their babies away at birth, sometimes while they were still hazy from medication. They lost all legal rights to their children and knowing who had adopted them. In cases like Bethesda, the home was faith-based and sold itself as a safe haven, when in reality, the opposite was true. Like I said earlier, it's a story that feels so dystopian, it's almost hard to believe it happened or that it happened so recently. But there's an untold number of people still alive who are living with its memory. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It's the late 1960s. A girl meets a boy and she falls in love. I'm going to call her Joy. Joy's only in the ninth grade, but things really click with her new boyfriend and they get intimate. Fast forward a couple weeks and Joy's breakfast isn't staying down. She has constant stomach aches and her mother finally asks, Joy, are you pregnant? Joy says no, even though she knows the answer is yes. This is the 1960s. If she tells her mom she's pregnant, it won't just mean she can't see her boyfriend again. Her entire family, her whole world will burst at the seams. There's still plenty of stigma around teen pregnancy today, but back in the 50s and 60s, you can imagine it tenfold. Some parents feel like the best option is to either marry their daughter off or send her away until the baby's born. Anne Fessler is the author of the book, The Girls Who Went Away, about women who surrendered their babies for adoption in the decades following World War II. She's the source for Joy's story. As a part of her research, Anne spoke to around 100 women about their experience. And as one of them told her, almost everyone who went to school at that time can recall a classmate who just kind of disappeared. Instead of returning with a baby, the girls came back with stories of visiting an aunt or suffering a so-called illness that kept them out of school. Joy doesn't want that to happen to her. For months, she covers her belly with a large fur coat. And finally, a case of German measles sends her to the doctor. The doctor tells Joy that if she doesn't tell her parents about the pregnancy, he will. So Joy goes home, and that night she breaks the news to her mother, who bursts into tears about the shame this could bring to their family. The next morning, Joy comes to the kitchen and reveals a plan she's been working on. She's got a job lined up. She's been saving her money. She and her boyfriend are going to get married. She even bought baby clothes. Joy wants to keep this baby. But her parents have a plan of their own, and it's non-negotiable. They're sending her to what's known as a maternity home. There are several hundred of these across the country. It's a place where girls like Joy can wait out their pregnancies. Joy's never even spent a night away from her parents before, but they pack her bag, drive her to a neighborhood in Los Angeles that she does not recognize, and leave her without as much as a kiss on the forehead. 
I want to point out that Joy's parents believed they were doing her, or at least themselves, a favor. Plus, the brochure for the home made it seem nice. It was supposed to give the girls a proper education, delicious home-cooked meals, a relaxing day room where they can spend their afternoons. But it's false advertising. On her first day, Joy's told to strip naked. She's held down and examined by a doctor. It's the first time she's ever been prodded with a speculum. The doctor even looks at her and says, Listen, you got yourself into this. If you would have kept your legs together, we wouldn't be doing this now. If I sound riled up, that's because I am. Now, life inside the home is anything but relaxing. Days typically include a frenzy of chores, like cleaning the toilets and helping in the kitchen. And I'll remind you, lots of girls are doing this up to eight months pregnant. Phone calls are monitored and visitors are tightly restricted. The staff makes a lot of the girls use fake names inside the home, so that way they can't find each other after this experience is over. On rare occasions, Joy's allowed out of the house. She and a few other young pregnant women wear fake wedding bands. Otherwise, they risk kids in the neighborhood throwing things at them. To add to this, Joy later reported what sounds like constant emotional abuse from the staff. They tell the girls repeatedly that they don't deserve to keep their babies, that they aren't responsible enough, or rich enough, or smart enough. Even if they want to keep their children, they really aren't getting a choice. By the mid-1960s, over 80% of the people in these homes are forced to give up their children for adoption. When it comes time for Joy to give birth, she has what you could consider a little better experience than most, which honestly isn't saying much. Her parents are in the delivery room with her. Typically, these girls are sent to the hospital alone, without a familiar face by their side. After Joy's baby is born, the nurse brings him to her, but she tells Joy she's not allowed to hold or feed her own baby. Joy figures there's been a mistake, so she does it anyway. And in those moments, she bonds with her little boy. Later, she's given a stack of adoption papers. It's normal for these mothers to be handed adoption forms to sign, often while they're still recovering from labor. These papers give either joint or temporary custody to an adoption agency or a third party so they can choose the child's new path. Nurses, doctors, and staff from the homes rarely, if ever, tell the mother that there's a grace period that she has time to change her mind. They also never tell new moms that it can take weeks or months for their child to be adopted or that their baby might wind up in the foster care system. Later, Joy will say that she felt like she had no choice. She signed the papers and a nurse walked off with the documents and her newborn son. And Joy returns to her old life, only she's heartbroken and irreparably changed. She gets little sympathy or support from family and friends. No one asks her how she's feeling about the trauma she just experienced. No one can really understand what she's endured. She never goes to prom or a high school football game. She never receives counseling. Instead, she gets a job. When she turns 18, she gets married and has another son, one she's finally allowed to keep. Joy's story is heartbreaking. And unfortunately, there are even darker versions of this experience. 
We know this next story thanks to a deep dive by NBC News into the Bethesda Home for Girls, a so-called Christian maternity home and place for wayward girls that operated from the 1960s to the 1980s. One of the residents they spoke to was a woman named Nancy Womack. In the early 1960s, 10-year-old Nancy and her younger sister Cheryl were sent to an orphanage in Dalton, Georgia, where they both lived for about five years until Cheryl was caught smoking a cigarette. One morning, Nancy wakes up to find Cheryl has been sent away without so much as a goodbye. She's been taken to another home where she can, quote, reconnect with her spirituality. The place is called the Bethesda Home for Girls. From Nancy's point of view, it's kind of an enigma, a place her sister got shuffled off to, but that she doesn't know much about. Then a year later, Nancy also finds herself in hot water. She's 16 now, and she's fallen in love with a boy at the orphanage. One thing leads to another, and Nancy realizes she's pregnant. Just short of her second trimester, the director of the orphanage hears the news. Nancy is told the mission will lose its funding if anyone finds out they've been harboring a pregnant, unwed teenager. And before long, Nancy is sent to the same place as her sister, the Bethesda Home for Girls. For context, Bethesda is just one of several troubled teen homes created by a fundamentalist Baptist minister named Lester Roloff. The centers were pitched as a safe haven for sex workers, young women living with substance use disorders, unwed pregnant mothers, and women described as, more air quotes here, disobedient. Local papers praise these homes as places that teach young women the way of God a place where, quote, miracles occurred. Residents would sometimes even tour the country, singing in churches and testifying about the amazing changes they'd experienced at Bethesda. At first, this kind of place actually sounded nice to Nancy. It's pitched to her as a fresh start. And if nothing else, she gets to see her sister Cheryl again. So she packs her bags and prepares for the long drive from Georgia to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. But halfway through the trip, the director of the orphanage tells Nancy the catch. She won't get to keep her child. Nancy loses it. She doesn't care how fast the car is going. She wants out. She tries unlocking the doors. She wants to jump, make a run for it. Anything to keep her baby. But she's trapped. And soon after arriving, Nancy realizes that Bethesda is far from being some picturesque retreat. There are about 120 girls in the home, and they sleep six to eight to a room. But they're not really allowed to talk to each other. Nancy is kept from having conversations with her own sister, the one person she was excited to see. And she can forget about calling anyone on the outside. She spends her days cleaning, going to Bible study, choir practice, or listening to old recordings of Lester Roloff's sermons. And if she doesn't listen, Nancy's seen what happens to girls who refuse to wake up at 5 a.m. for Bible study. They're taken to the group showers and beaten by the staff. Despite being pregnant, Nancy only receives a meager ration of food. Cheryl works in the kitchen and can sneak her scraps of bread, but Nancy has to hide in a dark closet to eat them. If she's caught, she could be beaten. If they cry, staff threaten to hit them even more. One woman is forced to drink Epsom salts, then do a bunch of rigorous chores. 
the same person later suffers a violent miscarriage. The emotional abuse is also horrific. Pregnant women are told their sins are worse than murder. And the thing is, some of these girls didn't arrive at Bethesda pregnant, and the only men who come to the facility are traveling ministers and staff. I'll let you put two and two together. It's despicable. It's disgusting. Nancy considers running away at different points during her stay. The problem is, girls who try to make a break for it never get very far. They're usually caught by local police and brought right back. In one instance, a 14-year-old girl who tried to escape was struck and killed by a car. Plus, the staff monitors Nancy's every move, every word, every decision, down to how much toilet paper she uses. There's no way out. And even if Nancy could get beyond Bethesda's locked doors, she doesn't have anywhere else to go. Her only choice is to wait for her child to be born and pray that by some miracle, she'll get to keep her child. But deep down, Nancy knows what'll happen to a baby born at Bethesda. They're sold under the guise of adoption to Christian families, typically for around $250 each. It's actually a source of revenue for Bethesda. Thankfully, Nancy isn't forced to give birth in a parking lot. A few weeks before her due date, Bethesda puts her on a plane to Tennessee, where she stays with a family member until it's time to deliver. That day arrives in June 1979. Nancy is admitted to a local hospital. Without any say in the matter, doctors place an IV in her arm, rendering her unconscious for the delivery. When she wakes up the next day, the baby is already gone. The doctor refuses to even tell her the sex of her child, but she does convince the nurse. It was a girl. After she's discharged, Nancy leaves Tennessee and returns to Bethesda. Eventually, Nancy's aunt takes her and her sister Cheryl in. I don't know why. Either way, they're out of the horror show that is Bethesda, but the damage has been done. Not a day goes by that Nancy doesn't think about her little girl, where she is, what she's doing, what kind of family she lives with now. All that information has been stolen from her. She only has this imaginary version of her own child. Over the years, she does what she can to find her daughter. She tries to get an attorney, but they tell her it's a waste of time. One lawyer reiterates that she was unfit to be a mother. And when she tries to contact child services, she says they didn't even believe her story. There are so many things about this that are hard to stomach, but the lack of recourse is one that hits me especially hard. Technically, young women like Nancy had no right to an investigation or to even correspond with their children if they even knew where they went. After this, Nancy loses hope she'll ever find her daughter. And this horrific cycle continues at Bethesda and other homes like it. Until 1982, when a new resident brings down the entire facility. It's 1982, three years after Nancy Womack gives birth. And another woman finds herself pregnant with little to no options. Her name is Candy. 
She's a 19-year-old from Alabama. When she realizes she's pregnant, she goes to her local reverend for help. He recommends she look into a place in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a place that could allow her to relax, let her finish her education. They'll even help facilitate the child's adoption to a lovely Christian family. On January 23rd, 1982, Candy is escorted to the Bethesda Home for Girls by a staff member and her trusted reverend. Upon arrival, she's forced to hand over all her belongings to another staff member, everything from her clothes to her diary and pictures of her family. Even her birth certificate is placed in a box and locked away. They put all Candy's money into a Bethesda bank account that she doesn't have access to. Then they hand her a contract. It says she'll be committing one full year of her life to Bethesda. Not knowing what else to do, Candy signs. She's 19, so she doesn't need her parents' consent. Two days later, she's able to call her sister, while one of the staff members, who everybody calls Granny, hovers over her. Candy tells her sister the situation seems okay, but when Granny steps out of the room for a moment, Candy's tone changes. What she's seen at Bethesda over the last 48 hours has scared her so much that she begs her sister to get her out of there. A couple days later, Candy's mom calls to check on her. The staff refuses to let her speak to her daughter. They tell her Candy's decided to stay until it's time to deliver the baby. And everything's perfectly fine. But the reality is, much like Nancy Womack before her, Candy's been literally locked inside Bethesda with no way out. On February 4th, Candy writes a letter to her mother, probably with a staff member peering over her shoulder. There are no obvious pleas for help or signs of distress, aside from one small clue, a safe word Candy promised to use if she was in trouble. Instead of dear mother spelled D-E-A-R, Candy spells it like the animal, D-E-E-R. It's enough for her parents to take drastic measures. Candy's dad, who's a police officer, calls an Alabama lawyer named Morris Dees. He says his daughter is being held captive at a girl's home in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Dees is so taken with the family's story that he charters a private plane to look into the matter firsthand. Once he arrives in Hattiesburg, he recruits a local policeman to escort him to Bethesda. They drive down a dirt road deep in the Mississippi woods. When they pull up to the property, Dees is shocked. It's a single-story concrete building, minuscule considering it's meant to house 120 girls plus staff members. Dees and the officer get out and knock on the door. They're greeted by an employee. About 30 young women and girls stand behind him, wearing robes and practicing the Bible. Dees calls out Candy's name, hoping she's in the crowd. And she drops her Bible and darts right over to him. Candy leaves with Dees that day, and on the plane ride home, she tells him everything that's happened to her and the others at Bethesda. By the time they land, Dees knows he has a class action lawsuit on his hands. The trouble will be getting the other residents to talk. I imagine this takes some doing, but eventually he gets approval to speak with the other girls still at Bethesda, but on the condition that they're each accompanied by a staff member. And with these employees looming over them, almost all the girls tell Dees that the treatment inside the home is fair, but he can tell from their body language that this isn't the case. 
So Dees convinces Bethesda's lawyers to let him speak with the girls without a staff member in the room. And that's when the veil is finally lifted. One young woman is crying before she even sits down. She reaches into her shirt and grabs a note she's been saving. It says, I really wish we could talk to you, but at this moment, it seems impossible. The letter continues by asking for protection. It's the only way they can speak the truth. And it's signed, not just by her, but by several of the people inside the home. Shortly after that, in the spring of 1982, these girls take a stand to talk about the atrocities at Bethesda. But two years later, the inquiries into Bethesda are still ongoing, and the home remains fully operational, with another hundred or so young women living there. A judge named Dan Wise is appointed to continue the investigation. In March 1984, he and a local sheriff's deputy pay a visit to the Hattiesburg site, during that check-in, one of the young women yells for help. She says they're being beaten and they want to get out. It's a random act of bravery that becomes the tipping point for Bethesda. After that day, a team of social workers and police officers descend on the home. One by one, they question the young women who tell them about restrictive diets, beatings, and emotional abuse. Wise equates their stories to CIA torture. In September 1986, he takes the case to court, claiming Bethesda has been illegally operating as a detention center. While the home isn't shut down entirely, rules now require the staff to stop using corporal punishment and censoring communication. It also means they'll be getting routine check-ins from the fire marshal. And it seems like once the horrible truth is exposed, Bethesda loses most of its funding. They close their doors for good in 1987. I had to stop recording this episode to compose myself. The impact of something like this is so widespread, not only on the mothers who will never know where their children went, but all those children who have no recourse to identify their birth mother. But to wrap up, I wanna leave you with, if you can believe it, a happy ending. Remember Nancy Womack, the woman who went to Bethesda with her younger sister? By 2019, she's in her late 50s. One day, her sister Cheryl tells her that she just got a message on Ancestry.com. It's from a woman named Melanie Spencer, who claims she's Nancy's long-lost daughter. Nancy's been able to piece together the story of her daughter's life. Right after Melanie was born in 1979, she was adopted by a missionary couple who'd heard about Roloff's organization through their church. Melanie spent most of her early life traveling with them, visiting places like Africa and Indonesia. She moved back to the States for college and eventually had two children of her own. Having a family made her want to find out about her birth mother. She'd known Nancy's first name, but that was about it. So she turned to Ancestry.com where she found Cheryl. And the rest is history. Nancy and Melanie met in person in August 2021, 42 years after they were separated from each other. Melanie said they were nervous at first, but when they got to talking, it felt like they've known each other for their entire lives. It's hard to imagine how much would have been different, not just in Nancy and Melanie's lives, but in so many people's lives had these homes not existed or had they existed in a completely different way, one that was actually caring and supportive and purely voluntary. 
this was only a few decades ago. Many of these children, and most likely their birth mothers, are still alive. It's a theme that came up in my last episode, The Highway of Tears, about the impact a single disappearance, let alone many of them, can have on generations to come. It's not just a stunning thought, it's true. And if it gets through to anyone listening to this episode and thinking about Mother's Day or their loved ones, I'm grateful. Because for too many people, not knowing where someone they care about is, is a daily reality. And the more we can understand and care about that reality in our society, the more action we'll take. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Episodes of Disappearances release every Thursday. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Marinelli, edited by Karis Allen and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, Produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.